As mentioned earlier, they will sing again at the end of the sermon. Today for our church prayer, as we cycle through the eight things that we're encouraging you to pray for regarding the church, we are on attendance. And when we pray for this, we're thinking of your family, we're thinking of friends, people that you know that no longer attend church for whatever reason. We're praying that uh, they will come back to church. And when they do, that they will find God. That when they come into the facility, there will be people who warmly greet them, demonstrate caring for them, and then also when they come into the worship service, they will experience God in a unique and wonderful way. Those of you who are able, I invite you to kneel with me as we pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today that your love will not let us go. Thank you so very, very much. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness toward us. And Heavenly Father, as we pray to you today, we are asking that when we open your word, that you will be the one who will teach us, that you will move in our hearts and that our lives will be changed. And we pray for those who no longer attend or those who could attend, and we ask, Lord, that they will. And when they come, we pray that they'll find you and that they'll find hope in you. They'll find strength in you. They'll find answers in you and that they will find that walking with you is a life that is worth living. So bless them and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told about an 87-year-old woman. She had never had a cold. She'd never been sick. She'd never broken a bone. She was 87 years old. She got up one morning, and when she stepped out onto the floor off of the bed, she rolled her ankle, and she said, Why does everything happen to me? She obviously wasn't a thankful person. Complaint had become a part of her life. And in fact, complaining had taken from her the joy of life. It had sapped her of what joy there is. And today I'd like to study that with you as we go to the Bible. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to continue our series in the life of Moses. Now what happened last week is that the children of Israel were delivered from the Egyptians and God led them to a place near the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army came riding their chariots and horses, whatever they had, came down upon the Israelites and the Israelites cried out for help from God and God opened up the Red Sea. They went across on dry ground. When they got on the other side, Pharaoh and his army came down into the Red Sea. God shut the, the walls, or he closed the walls, I should say, in. The water 
came in upon them and they drowned. They were delivered. They spent some time there at the shore praising God. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 15. They were declaring with great ceremony and joy that uh, God who is like you, there is no other God among you or like you among the gods. You are the only God. They praised Him. They worshiped Him. Miriam took the ladies and orchestrated a wonderful dance and they celebrated their deliverance. The story we're going to read took place three days later. And we're going to read verses 22 through 27, and then we will go back and look at the verses individually. Chapter 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Mara. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them, and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Let's go to verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, I have uh, the joy of listening to the music three times on Sabbath morning. And the musicians sometimes have the joy of listening to me three times. And what is interesting is that those that have been around a while have a tendency to come up and share things with me that they thought of during the sermon. Obviously in the hopes that I will incorporate it in the sermon. And I'm going to do that. I'm just not going to give any of them credit for what, uh, what I've learned. One of them demonstrated to me the rules of three. And uh, they go like this. Three minutes without air we die. Three hours in a very harsh environment without shelter, we die. Three days without water, we die. And the typical person, three weeks without food, we die. It's called the rules of three. And we discover that the Israelites have journeyed three days, and they've come to the extremity. They need water. Scholars estimate that the two million plus people that would have been traveling with all their livestock could go about 11 miles a day. So they've gone 33 miles. It took them three days to get there. They're at the end of their resources regarding water, and they need water. And when they find water, they discover the water is simply undrinkable. Look at verse 23. 
Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. Marah simply means bitter. So what do they do? <clears throat> Verse 24, it says, And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? The New International Version says they grumbled against Moses. And that's kind of an interesting word, grumbled. I mean, it sounds like grumbling. Grumbled against Moses. I was curious to see what murmur means, so I looked it up in a Hebrew dictionary. The Hebrew word is spelled L-U-W-N, pronounced loon. And its root word is L-I-Y-N, pronounced lean. So the primary root of the word loon is lean, and this is what the primary root means. It means to stop, usually to stay overnight, to continue, to dwell, to endure, by implication to stay permanently. And as it is used in this context, hence to stay permanently in an obstinate, complaining attitude and action. It is describing someone who has grabbed hold of a complaint and they will not let go. They are obstinate in their complaining. Now, obstinate, obstinate means perversely adhering to an opinion, purpose, or course in spite of reason, in spite of arguments, or in spite of persuasion. Nothing was going to change their opinion. They were perversely adhered to their opinion in spite of reason, arguments, or persuasion. They were complaining. They would not stop. Nothing could get them to stop complaining. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was an answer to their prayer. They had been praying, God, do something, deliver us. We've heard the promises that you gave to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been here in Egypt for hundreds of years, and we're under the cruel bondage and the whip and the lash. Please deliver us. God sent them a deliverer. And then through the plagues and on that was associated with it, he delivered them from Egypt. He had destroyed their, their enemies in the Red Sea. God had manifested himself as a protective cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Here they are at the extremity of their thirst and they complained. They forgot. They did not remember God. They did not consider what he had done for them. They hunkered down into their complaint. And then we see what God did. Verse 25. So Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. Now, Moses cried out to God, and God said, look, here's what I want you to do. You see that tree? Take that tree and throw it in the water, and then drink it. So for thousands of years, scholars have tried to figure out, well, what happened? What kind of tree was that? 
and you have those that have a scientific background and, and they, they have identified a certain tree that is bitter. How, how do you know if a tree is bitter? Do you lick its bark? Do you chew, cut off a piece and chew? I don't know. But they say there's, a, there's some type of principle, and I didn't understand it, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure I believe it, but they say if in chemistry you take bitter and bitter and you can make sweet. I don't know, in my life, if I take bitter and add bitter, it's just more bitter. But they're saying that's what happened. And there was a chemical reaction, scientifically explained, so there you go. In the days of Jesus, the rabbis in their targums had written what they thought it meant. And what they thought it meant was that the sacred name of God, Jehovah, which could never be spoken, is that Moses was shown this tree and he wrote the name of God on the tree and when that sacred name hit the water, boom, sweetness came and everything was taken care of. And then, a number of years ago, several hundred years ago, when theologians were really into allegory, they came along and said, well, the tree... Duh, what did Jesus die on? He died on the tree. And so this is about the cross. And so in our lives, when we're facing bitterness and we're facing difficulty, think about the cross and we see our Savior dying for us and it will sweeten up any experience we have. And that may be correct in its application, but I'm not sure that's what God meant by all of it. What we do know is this. These people couldn't do anything at all, and God took care of them. God provided supernaturally. And then a phrase is used here that just doesn't sound like it actually means. Look at verse 25. So he cried out, that's Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he, that's God, made a statute and an ordinance for them where he tested them. Now when you think of a statute or an ordinance, immediately my mind thinks of law. And it is associated with law, but something different than what I had anticipated. And maybe you're wondering, well, what law did God give them at that time? He didn't give them any law at that time. That will come at Sinai as they journey down there. And we'll get to that in a few chapters. Here's what Alfred Edersheim has to say about it. Now, Dr. Edersheim was a Jewish man who lived in the 1800s. He became a believer in Christ, and he was a prolific writer, a tremendous scholar. And he would write through the perspective of the Jews with the understanding of who Jesus was. It's just a beautiful, beautiful writing that he does. And he has a book called Bible History of the Old Testament. It's my favorite book to read when I'm studying these stories. And I want to read a quote to you as he explains what statute and ordinance for them meant. Quote, the statute or principle and the ordinance, or right, was this. 
that in all seasons of need and seeming impossibility, the Lord would send deliverance straight from above and that Israel might expect this during their wilderness journey. The statute is for all times the principle of God's guidance and this ordinance the right or privilege of our heavenly citizenship. But he also ever proves us by this and We'll talk about that in a minute. So what he is saying is that it is a statute. It means principle. Ordinance means right. The principle is established by God. The right is ours as followers of God. And it boils down to this, that when we come to our extremities, when we come to the end of our ability to do things, God will act on our behalf. He will send from above what is necessary and what is needed, and we will be delivered. That's what this is about. And so God is establishing for them this understanding. This story will be replayed over and over and over again as they journey from here to the promised land. They have a problem, God delivers them. Have a problem, God delivers them. Have a problem, God delivers them. But they never learned. They never caught on. They never expressed themselves in faith. What they did is every time they had a problem, they complained. And they took God's deliverance out of the equation and lived in their complaint. And complaining sapped them of life. And it sapped them of the ability to go into the promised land. Have you uh, ever met somebody who complains all the time? They're hard to be around, aren't they? It's just no fun. It wears at you. It, it takes from you. It reminds me, I, I read just this week that uh, Charles Spurgeon was speaking to a group of pastors. Now, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the Baptist church in London in the 1800s. He was the prince or the chief of preachers, he was called. He was a tremendous, tremendous speaker. And if you get a chance to study some of the things he wrote, you'll be impressed that he was a genius. And uh, so Charles Spurgeon is talking to pastors about preaching. And he says, look, when you talk about heaven, let it show in your face. Smile, look radiant, look happy. He says it's all part of talking about heaven. And so one of the pastors there raised their hand and said, well, what do we do when we talk about hell? And Spurgeon says, just use your normal face. <laughs> There's a lot to that. Do you know that some people's face because of the complaining spirit that they have, you know they don't have peace and they're not reflecting heaven, right? And other people, you see them and you say, there's something about them. They, they have this aura. 
They have a glow. They, they have a joy. They have a, they've got something that causes them or gives them help to weather the storm. Now, so let's look at chapter 15, verse 25 again. There God made a statute and an ordinance for them. He said, this is the way it is. This is how it's going to be. And there he tested them. He tested them. Now, in the King James Version, it says he proved them. Though we don't use that expression a lot anymore, it's still not awkward to our ears. We kind of get it. It means to test the quality of something through experimentation or a standard. You prove it to see whether it's up to what it's supposed to be. And this verse is telling us that God promised to provide for the needs of the Israelites, that God would deliver them from every obstacle. The right and privilege of this was theirs as long as they exercised faith in Him. And along the way, God would test them to see if they had faith. So God is the one who led them three days out to a place where there was no water. Why? To find out... Well, he knew for them to find out where they're at in this faith journey. They did not say, wait a minute, there's no problem here. Why would God have delivered us from Egypt? Why would God have taken us through the Red Sea? Why would the great God of the universe who did all that, why would he bring us out here and just leave us here to die? They didn't ask those questions. They didn't reflect upon that. They just murmured and complained and could not be consoled. They just heaped negativity upon negativity until they took God out of the equation. And God was revealing to them that's what their heart was. Now I want to show you in a very practical, simple story how this works. Um, keep a marker there in Exodus 15, because we will come right back and turn to John chapter 6. <clears throat> in John chapter 6, we begin with verse 1. It says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Reasonable question. Is there anyone here that thinks Jesus doesn't know the right answer? Watch the very next verse. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Here we find in a practical illustration that Jesus is trying to help Philip understand where his heart is regarding faith. If Philip knew the right answer, instead of trying to calculate financially what it would cost to feed these people and whether or not we can get to Taco Bell and back in time, you know, he would have said, Lord, thou knowest. You know. I don't know, but you know. 
And it is true. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Do you believe that when you get to a point where you are at the end, do you believe God already knows what he's going to do? Absolutely he does. And God wants you at that point of extremity to express faith in him. He wants you to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you and I believe you're going to deliver me some way, somehow. I don't know how, but I trust you. That's what this walk with God is taking us to. So now let's go back to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. And God says this, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is about healing. Now, God says three things here. Number one, diligently heed His voice. The New International Version says, listen carefully. The New American Standard Version says, give earnest heed. The Amplified Version says, diligently hearken. Listen to what God has to say. It's interesting that when we looked at the deliverance of last week, we read, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You're going to be quiet. And that's what God is repeating here. Be quiet and listen. Listen to what God says in His Word. Listen to what He has told you in the past. Listen carefully. Pay attention. Number two, do what is right in His sight. The New International Version says, do what is right in His eyes. Don't be like in the days of the judges when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The NIV says everyone did as he saw fit. No. Listen to the voice of God and do what is right in God's eyes. The third thing, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, the NIV says. Follow my laws and teachings, the contemporary English version says. So right now you're thinking, all right, it just got confusing. It just got hard. I get to listen. I get to do what's right in his eyes. But all his commandments and all his statutes, what are you talking about? There's a lot of stuff in the Bible. So... I'm glad you've asked the question and you want me to straighten you out on your confusion. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7 and we'll let Jesus teach us today. Matthew chapter 7 and we're going to read verse 12. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 Jesus says, Therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you realize what Jesus said there? He says the totality of the Old Testament is summed up in this. Do 
unto others as you want them to do unto you. And the person who tries that is going to find out real soon they can't do it without God in their life, without Christ in their heart. And so we find that a complaining spirit is all about me. And it's all about my whining complaint. And I squeeze God out of my life. And no matter what evidences there are to the contrary, I will hold on to my complaint and I will shrivel spiritually in my negativity. And so the Lord says, no, listen to my voice. Do what I say is right in my sight and treat others as you want to be treated. So let me ask you something. Let's put it in the context of marriage. Here comes the spouse home from work and everything they have to say is a complaint. That's one day. You can get over that. You can understand. You can listen and pray with them. The second day, everything they have to say is a complaint. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth. How many days is it before you're thinking, I hope they're late today? And Jesus is saying this. Think about your complaining you think about your exaggerated negativity. How would you want to be treated? And you recognize you wouldn't want to live with you. What a bummer. What a downer. What a life stealer. And so when we stand back and we put it in perspective, we say, I have got to become a person of faith. And a person of faith believes that God will take care of those things in my life. And I don't have to be so wrought up in my fears, anxieties, hurts, and pains that I am bitter water that nobody can drink. But there's a miracle in the story. Bitter water became sweet and life-sustaining. Well, it raises some questions for me. You know, such a beautiful picture of God here is painted for us. He's going to take care of us. He's promised to take care of us. He, he says, this is who I am and this is how it works. In fact, I believe God is looking for people to bless. You know, imagine in, in parenting classes, they say, you don't reward bad behavior. And I haven't found that in the Bible, but it sure seems like a biblical principle. You know, do we put God in an awkward position when everything coming out of our mouths is a complaint? It's, it's like the Lord would be saying, come on, give me something to work with here. I can't reward bad behavior. Say something positive so I can help you get over this. God is looking for people to bless. There'll be people who thank Him, who trust Him, who say, Lord, I don't know how, but I know You're going to get me out of this mess. So I have questions. Is it possible that our complaining is stopping the blessings God wants to give us? Are we so afraid, so angry, or so bitter that we cannot be reasoned with? 
Are we so focused on some current problem we have totally forgotten God's blessings in the past? Do we really believe that God knows what He is doing and what He will do? And do we honestly seek to do unto others as we want them to do unto us? These are important questions. And one thing I know about this story, I don't understand how God did it, but I don't understand a lot of things. I don't have to. I know God did it. God turned bitterness to sweetness, and it became life-sustaining. And that was supposed to be a faith-building experience. And today I'm asking if there's anyone here who would like the bitterness of their hearts to be turned to sweetness, and if you would like it to become a life-sustaining heart filled with the Holy Spirit. If you would like to say yes to the Lord, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, we thank you for a Savior named Jesus. We ask him to come into our hearts. We pray for forgiveness for our continual complaining. And we ask by your grace that we'll become men, women, and boys and girls of faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.